I got it. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening, and especially, Father, for those who this evening couldn't be here, Alice and Ruby, and we pray for Ruby, for Alice's mom, and she's having a problem, and Lord, keep her with us. She's such a delight. Father, we ask you for Brett and Pat. Give them a wonderful time. They don't get away much. Give them a great cruise. I thank you for everyone that's here. And as we gather, we gather at a time when the future of our country, to say the very least, is in pieces. It's shattered, and we do not know where we're going. But we do know, Lord, who is over all, for you are sovereign God. We thank you for those that are here, and we as the body of Christ that have come together tonight, come to glorify you, to study your word, and then to live according to what we learned as to how you would have us live. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. 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 All right. Tonight we are in chapter 5, and in my opinion, there are a few passages in Scripture that carry the strong warning we have in Daniel 5. This is something I wrote in speaking in another situation, speaking on Daniel 5. And as I went over Daniel 5 and had preached through it fairly regularly, I just, it came to me that we are right now in the middle of a crisis that is unlike anything we have ever seen. And then at that time, it seemed, and it seems even more so today, that the problem in our nation is that we are attempting to lock the sovereign God out of its, our public life. When we do that, we need to remember Daniel 5. I'm sure the uh, people who are not even thinking about God won't, but we need to, and we need to go to it. For in Daniel 5, we have a party. The party is a political party. We have plenty of those going on, and we have just had the elections, but we are less than a year away from the national elections. When I was pastoring in Austin, we got invited to all kinds of political parties, and some were we went to, some we didn't. I'm not wild about wearing tuxedos, but we put up with that anyway and went. And we really enjoyed some of them. Some of them were just a big gathering. But political parties usually are to celebrate what's happened and to ask uh, everyone to prepare and to give themselves to cause something wonderful to happen again and these nominated for that group that they would be elected. We face a problem now that we have totally forgotten who has his hand on government. Daniel points that out. He points it out in two and three and four and five. And this sort of ends, this is sort of the middle of the book. And in five, we really see the results of deciding that we will lock the sovereign God out of our political system. To think we can do that is absolute lunacy. All you have to do is study the history of nations, going back as far as we can, and we find that those who shut out God, they get shut down. Those who don't, 
while they are following the Lord, they are prosperous and go forward. We're on the downslide in that, and this chapter deals with that. It's a chapter about a party. That's what the whole chapter is about. It's a party in Babylon, and it is a party that, they, as I say, they are celebrating what they have done, and they are preparing to do what great and wonderful things, and sure they can do it. And the problem is they have shut God out of their public and private life. Now, what they don't know that on this night, it is in a very specific 24-hour period, Babylon will cease to exist as a kingdom. The city will go on. In fact, when we are in the time of our Lord, we know that the city of Babylon is going on, but they are not ruling anybody. They are ruled by somebody. But at this point, it has been the greatest nation in that part of the world and probably in all the world. But now they have come to the end. The year is 539 B.C. In that year, the nation will cease to be a nation. It will be a place that, in fact, is going to be overrun by the new, uh, might say, uh, world beaters, the, the people who are Persians. But on the night of 539 B.C., they did not believe this could happen. That is the Babylonians. And so they were having a party, and suddenly God crashed it. He crashed their party. What we read about is the spiritual side of the real happening in here, what really caused it. And what is going on behind the scenes, we are not told, but history tells us. As they are gathered, let's just look at chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. We need to know the setting of this place. The palace is the palace that Nebuchadnezzar built. It is an incredible place. The ruins are still there. But the main feature of that palace is the great banquet room. It probably was close to four stories high, although it was the ceiling went up three stories. On the top of that ceiling and the rest of the palace area where they had a flat surface, the Babylonians at the design of Nebuchadnezzar had planted a forest, not just a garden, he could go up in the trees, you know, I'm going upstairs and sit under the trees. And it was really something special. It only not only had that, but down the next three stories in that banquet area, you have this huge banquet room. Now, the closest I can bring you to understand what this looked like is to talk about... Uh, AT&T Stadium, which used to be Texas Stadium. You go in and you have this open area, and then on all four sides you have state walls going up and people sitting in it and sitting in stands. Now, there were no stands on the wall in this, 
but there was one area where people sat, very much like the skyboxes we have now at AT&T Stadium. Phyllis Ann and I have gotten to sit in boxes like that twice, one there and once time in St. Louis when we were doing an interim pastorate. And these boxes are, are marvelous. They're luxurious. They bring wonderful food. And so the people of importance get to be there. We weren't those people, but they were nice enough to ask us to. In this case, there is one great skybox. If you think of this room being the floor and you're down on the banquet floor, you would look up as it were to the, what would be the four story if you went up, but you would see on this side, you would see first a cluster of lights that gave illumination to nearly all of the room. There were other small lights placed here and there, but these were the, what they call the lampstand lights. Then you'd come back and you would have a skybox, and in that skybox sat the king and anybody else he might choose to have. And he was served there with his guests. But down below were the thousand, probably more than that, nobles who are being served on this night. And they are there to do two things. They are there to cause the nation to lift their heads up politically and militarily and be sure they're going to win this situation because they have a real problem. The second thing they're doing, it's not only uh, political, it is theological. They are praising the gods of Babylon. Now, when we left Babylon in chapter 4 last week, Babylon was following God under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. But that was 23 years ago, and there had been two kings since this time, and now you have this king, Belshazzar, on the throne. Actually, he is king regent. The real king, whose name is Nabonidus or Nabonidus, is out in the Arabian desert at his palatial palace at a wadi, or a, a really a marvelous spring, where he had set up a place where he could get away from it all and live in luxury. And he is out there. It's 23 years since the real leader of Babylon has been around, and that, of course, was Nebuchadnezzar. Back in Babylon, the king regent, Belshazzar, as we have read, is throwing this party. Now, inside, you never know what was going on outside of the walls of Babylon. But what you have is, if we went outside or dared to, we would realize that the city of Babylon was sitting in a puddle of Persians. And I mean great armies of Persians. And they are going to take that city that night. Herodotus, uh, Halicarnassus, uh, and a number of the ancient historians talk about this experience or the battle that took place. It wasn't really a battle. But what they did, they brought their armies and they're led by, of course, Cyrus. But actually he had a general who will meet later who uh, led the attack. And it was really no attack because you remember the city of Babylon is on the east bank, right. or it was, of the Euphrates, Euphrates River. 
But right before you get to Babylon, there's a tributary that came off the Euphrates and went to the very, through the very place that they built the city of Babylon. And when they built it, they dredged out that tributary and made it a great canal with a lot of small canals. And it went to the city and it didn't stop. What they did, they dug down far enough so that tributary went under the city of Babylon and it was something like 15 feet deep and they had a, a as it were, a grate that came down that would keep people from swimming up and getting in. Well, that didn't bother Cyrus a whole lot. He knew how deep it was and so what they did, they just dammed up that tributary and it drained the water into lakes north of them and the night that they attacked or the day they actually attacked at night the soldiers walked on as it were dry ground right under this right into the city and took it without firing a shot we are here at the evening when this is happening now i'm sure it was a glitzy party one where they all were enjoying a lot of interesting things, but they mostly are not going to live through the night. And so we're, we've been invited to that party, not to suffer in it, but to be guests. And as we're there, we want to notice what mistakes they had made and what caused this. Well, the main thing we know is that they had turned from God. They had turned and thought they could follow their own gods and put things together for themselves. As we crash the party, we, we're sort of invisible as we come. Uh, we look at this hall with a thousand guests, probably more in it. And we think of the one that built it, Nebuchadnezzar. He died in 562. Remember, he began to reign at about 609. And so he is uh, gone, but tonight you would think that they were about to have another great victory, 539. Now, Belshazzar was related to Nebuchadnezzar in one sense. He, uh, he was, there's a discussion on this, and so we're not going to get the different views in history of who he was. Some believe he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, others that he was the son. He may well have been the son, and the queen we see in this account is his mother, and that may be, or it's his grandmother. So mothers and grandmothers have an important <laughs> place in life. And that's what we find going on. And Belshazzar, as we step into this, is up there in his skybox. Now, he's up there because the Babylonians were very stuffy about the importance of their king, and he deserved it. The guy that's up there now does not deserve it. When we come to it, we need to realize something, that the main reason, again, for this fall this wiping out of Babylon, and I've been doing a lot of study in history just the last year, looking at the end of nations. The end is always the same. They are wiped out because they have tried to seal God out of their government, their system. And you just don't 
do that. We're trying to do that in America now. We're trying to lock God out. You know, I was amazed at that. I'm working on this message, and I love studying the book of Daniel. But I had something that was in the Epic Time, and this was in 2019. It's not very long ago. But in 2019, we still were looking at the problem of putting God out of our system and what it could call cause. And the title of this article, in fact, it's about five pages long in the Epic Times, is Rembrandt and Writing on the Wall. And Rembrandt has a painting which depicts this night. So we're in a very important place. Rembrandt wrote and painted a great, as it were, painting, a great moving painting with all kinds of scenes of this night we're looking at. And Rembrandt understood something, that when you shut God out, you are setting yourself. You shut God out of your presence, you are in future sock. The future is going to take you down. And so we want to begin to look at this. Now, as we look at it, uh, if you have a question to ask, we'll, we'll talk about it. I've never gotten to go to Babylon. I was set to go. Phyllis Ann was going to let me go. Bruce Walkie, my professor of Old Testament at Dallas, uh, was taking, he was going to take 12 of us, <coughs> disciples and what. But about three days before we were to leave, the Shah fell in Iran, and Babylon was, is still, <coughs> the ruins are in Iran. So we didn't get to go to Babylon. I'm not sure I want to. I wouldn't want to go today. But uh, anyway, by the way, you can go online. There, there are great pictures of the ruins of Babel, and you can look them up, and they're really well done. And uh, so you might want to do that somewhere. Now, we find in the first scene that this king has made some huge changes. He did them more than any other. The others were not godly as such. Uh, I do think that probably those that followed, the one that followed right after Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> was a godly man, but we're, we don't know how godly. But this is about that night. And so he says that when Belshazzar in verse 2 tasted the wine and gave orders to bring gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and the nobles and wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. We're going to find out something about this guy. He lives in a delusion. First, he's going to tell Daniel, he's going to describe Daniel himself as, you were one of the captives from Israel. He treats him as if he's some guy he'd never met. You have to follow this because Daniel is eventually going to tell him when he finds, he wants Daniel to tell him why he's seeing what he's seeing. Daniel's going to tell him. But when he gets through, he starts off by saying, 
these things happened in the lives of your father and what he did, Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, and you knew about the Jews who, which Daniel was one. And he said, he's saying to them, and then he says, after telling him, reminding him of all that brought him to that moment, he says, and you knew all these things. Mm-hmm. You knew it. And so he blows his cover. I, I love this scene because Daniel's tougher than blue leather. He, he's a very nice guy. He's, he's probably been demoted now to counting bricks, and they used a lot of bricks in Babylon. But he doesn't let that bother him. But when God puts him on, watch out. The fire moves, and we're going to see that. And so anyway, they're drinking, and they're, the thing, too, that he's, he acts like, the uh, Belshazzar acts like he doesn't know who Daniel is. He's not really familiar with the Jews. That's a big lie, because what vessels are they using, defaming them to worship the gods of Babylon? From the temple. That's right. That's right, out of the temple of God. They knew very well what was going on. And he did. Now, as he's doing it, suddenly God crashes the party. <laughs> and I love this. When I every time I read this passage, let me read a little of it. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of his hand that did the writing. The Lights and such, the main ones were just a, a little ways from the skybox, basically on that same side. But across from there, there was the other wall. And that's where suddenly a hand appears. Now, they hadn't been there long enough to be drunk enough to think that was the problem. <laughs> and they, they see this hand appear. That would, that would get your attention. All hand, and it says, really, it says in. This is what Aaron Maker, he did, the hand, the palm, but it's his whole hand. And it begins writing, and it writes on the wall, and the king saw the back of the hand. Every time I come to this passage, I, I love, musically, I love classical music. I don't like giddy bop and all that stuff, but there is one group I really liked, and I still listen to them, and that was Simon and Garfunkel. I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed Peter, Paul, and Mary. <clears throat> but to my, to our great praise and blessed, thanking God, Peter and Paul both became committed believers. We have been in Jerusalem when they were holding a concert, and they they are still faithfully following the Lord. But Simon and Garfunkel were anything but believers. Yet they had a handle on understanding where we were as a country. And that's not true of a lot of people. They know what's happening and it's not good, but they have no idea what to do about it. But they had a song that I thought about a lot. And then when we lived in New York and I pastored, they gave their last great concert in Central Park. We didn't get to go. I didn't have that kind of money. But Billy Graham did his last city meeting there. We got to go to that. Right after the other one. Yeah, right after the other one. Yeah, Billy Graham, yeah, first you have Simon and God. I think that was God's plan. But one of the songs they sang then and they I loved hearing is The Sound of Silence. We were back in New York about 18 months ago 
And the young man who's now pastor of Calvary went back to do his ordination service. He was one of our guys, Abraham Joseph. And we lived there. I lived in New York as a boy. And we lived there as pastor and wife on West 57. And getting back there and landing and going into the city, we immediately began to pick up something. We were there about three days. And it was that the city, though a city that never sleeps, it was a city that had quit making noise or talking. It was, quite, it was like their song, The Sound of Silence. And, and, you know, it says people are walking, but they're not hearing. They're talking, but you can't hear them. It's, it's just the city was, and that's what you do. You walk down the street, a crowded street, it's absolutely quiet. Because the city has realized that something is not right. Well, that is what is going to happen in Babylon when the hand comes out. God may be putting his hand out for America right now. This is a very serious message. I, I come to this message and I, we are in that kind of situation. And as it strikes, uh, I hope it turns us back but it will bring the sound of silence. Well, this sound of silence came because a hand writing on the, wrote on the wall. And the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that. And then he does what all of the kings did when they got in trouble. Call the wise men, the, the, uh, the pagan priests and whatever you have. He called and allowed to bring in the conjurer and the, uh, what we call the Chaldeans, actually, it's the, in Aramaic, it's the Chasdeen. And they were actually not from Babylon. They were from really where Abraham began, or, but he had brought them up, and they were basically astrologers. I don't know if you all know much about astrology. If you don't, don't try to learn. I guarantee it. But I grew up in Miami, Florida, and my astrology was big, even in the streets. And I know we, on Saturday after football practice, or I played high school ball there, We'd go downtown in Miami because Burdines had an air conditioner in their store and it was the one. So we'd all, after being on the front, we'd go stay in Burdines about an hour going up and down on the escalator <laughs> and get cool. <laughs> then when we got cool, we'd go back and we'd always go down here near the Bayfront Drive because there were these astrologers who had their places. And we delighted going by saying, the stars will tell, the stars will tell. Fortunately, they never arrested us, but that is what the kings thought, and a lot of people in Miami thought they were right, I guess. But anyway, these, these come in, and of course they've been in before, but they've learned their lesson of how to do things. They've learned it with Nebuchadnezzar, because remember when they tried to lie to him, that was not the smartest thing they ever did in chapter 2, and he says, you're either going to tell me what I dreamed, I know what I dreamed, and if you don't know, you're in trouble, and tell me what it means, or I am going to limb you. Remember we said that means you have a chain, a rope around your neck, one around each arm, one around your legs, 
and we have five horses and they are all pointing in different directions and we say giddy up and that's what they did and so they said this is not what we really want to be in well the guys have learned because we see before when they come they said we don't know and they do not know here and uh, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers the chaldeans the castine the diviners and the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon. Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation, and he shall be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, that's a great clue to us. Because the king in the palace in the city of Babylon, Belshazzar, is saying, I'm only second. That's right. Because Daniel would be third in line. And his father, of course, is out there in the desert enjoying life. And so we won't, he, he didn't have a part in this. And so the, as they tell him this, then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. And King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Verse 10 brings us to something that we uh, really wind up learning a lot about Babylonian history. In fact, historians who, who actually are sane and in their right mind will use this part of Daniel to determine what was happening in Babylon. The queen that enters, uh, the queen entered the banquet hall. She's not there. Notice, big banquet, she's not there. Now, she is not the wife of Belshazzar. She is either his mother or his grandmother, and that's one of the arguments, you know, whether the, the, his father was the king or it was his father or that man was his stepmother. I think the queen is his mother, and she would, he would later be put on the throne. At any rate, she comes in, and... Uh, because of the words of the king and his noble. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. I personally think that she is going to be like my wife. She's going to say what she's going to tell, what the Lord says, try to lead him then right then. And I think that's what happened because I'm convinced this queen is a believer. Now, she is the wife, of course, of uh, the of Nebuchadnezzar, if, if that is true. The other, the real king that had been appointed, the Bonadus, was probably an uncle. And so this queen would have been his mother, but she did not have a lot of an influence over him. And in fact, when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, she probably had a lot of time on her hands. I think she probably went to a lot of ladies' Bible studies. Mm -hmm. I have background for that, that she, she went to the Bible studies, and they had a lot of Bible studies going on in Babylon that went on even though they had this yo-yo as King Belshazzar. We know that because in the time of our Lord, there were many believers in Babylon. That's right, they came. Yeah, well, tell me about some people from Babylon that were believers. They came when he was born. They followed the star. Star, yeah. The, the, the star brought him right to it. So you have that. And we know from other literature that many of the people living in 
in Babylon. They have a large Jewish committee, and many of them are Messianic Jews. At any rate, she is she's there, and she comes to tell Belshazzar, there is a man, verse 11, in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. You can't translate that line in Aramaic that way, but I think the best, uh, best way to translate it is a, is, a, is a spirit of the holy God. Now, she didn't have all of her theology together, but I think she knew that God was one, and he had the, the spirit of God. You see this in Daniel. He's in power, too. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom of light, the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Of course, she's talking about Daniel. Now, as I said, he's probably chief brick counter or you know, keeping the streets clean or something. We don't know, but he's been demoted. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the mag magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. And this was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations and enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, I love this particular part of it because uh, you know, they, they are about to come in contact with one that they have put aside. And I love the bravery of Daniel. We're going to see when we get over Daniel 9. This has beautiful passages. He is called, given a title or a, de a definition or, or, of, as, a, as one who follows God that is more brilliant than any other except for our Lord Jesus. And that we'll see when we get there. But he is called something we don't have anywhere else. And an angel tells him this. He tells him, you know who you are? And he tells him, that had had my head had gotten so big I would have exploded. So, but he didn't. He was a man of great humility. Daniel was about the only one that didn't fall by the way and sinned against him. You're right. He, he, He's about the only one in the Bible. Yeah, we don't have a recorded sin now. We know if you read, uh, and that, that's a good point to bring, if you read uh, in Daniel 9, the first 18 verses, you have the prayer he prays, and we see no sin from him. And this angel says, you are a man highly esteemed by God. That's what he says. And we have no recorded sin. Now, he's going to tell you that 1 through 18, he has sinned, I've sinned, we have sinned. He, he always includes himself. But he is something else. And, uh, we, we don't get to see but we're born in sin. Therefore, he was a sinner because yeah, he was we, born. Just like the only one that wasn't in the Lord. But I think it is significant that you have no sin pointed out about him. I don't know if anybody else did. He confesses any other questions before we go on? Daniel's coming in, so there's a big break in 13. I want to know why weren't they aware of the huge army they were surrounded on? I'm sure they were aware. But where was that? Where was their army? Their army had already been decimated. They'd fought several battles. Okay. And they'd already been decimated. And yet they thought they were safe in the Yeah, they thought they were we're what and that's a great great comment because they thought Babylon 
and we did with this group because I didn't want to be here until next year. Uh, we didn't go over the bill, the, the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon was one huge fort. And they thought no one could come in. That's why they had the banquet. In fact, they talk about this and they, nobody can come in and take us. That, that was really what they did. But they had lost, basically lost their army. They had no army. That was all they had left. Anyway, any other questions you have asked? That was a good question. And that really important. When we come to 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel? This guy is so full of hot air. He knows exactly who he is. You know, he's what he is. They had a, great, a very quick turn away from God. And he knows exactly who Daniel is. Brought in Daniel, and the king spoke and said, "Are you?" Said to Daniel, "Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah?" Then he says, "Now I have heard about you that you about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers." were brought in before me and they read that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you and that you are able to give <laughs> interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make it interp an interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple Wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will be have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself. You don't say that to an Oriental <laughs> king unless you've got a lot of chutzpah or you're really trusting God. The latter was true of Daniel. Or give your gifts, your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the interpretation to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all of the people of nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whoever he wished to kill, and whoever he wished to spare, kill, and whoever he wished to spare alive, and whoever he wished to elevate, and whoever he wished, he, hum he humbled. But when his heart went, now this is talking about what we looked at last night, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne and the glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beast. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys and he was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew and heaven until he recognized from heaven, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over all the realm of man and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Now, 
at this point, he is going to read a sentence. There is no chance for Belshazzar, apparently from what he says. You know, people come to a point where they hear about the Lord, they hear about the Lord, but finally, there is a point of no return. When they make a definite decision, I believe every person makes a decision. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving one. Well, all of us were blinded at the beginning because we didn't know Christ, but those who listened, the light began to shine and it came in. But those who say no, eventually it's not just it's getting darker, it's black, it's done. And uh, there is a, that point, and he's reached it, and that is why. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. And that's the other thing we all know. God knows everything that has been. And so he is being told that. Now, he goes on to tell him uh, that you have exalted yourself against the God of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the God of silver and gold and bronze and wood iron and wood and stone, and you did not see, hear, or understand, who do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hands are your life breath. That really is said only here in the Old Testament. Now, if you heard that, that would be a message from an evangelist. Your life breath is in the hand of the God you have turned. Daniel is telling these, he says that and all of your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written. Now this is the inscription that was written. This is in, Ara in Aramaic. Many, many tichel of uparsin. I mean, you've got to go a whole parson like that. Anyway, it's the interpretation, the interpretation of the message is, many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tichel, you have been weighed in the scales and found in de deficient. Yeah, and the old English said warning. I like that word. But Pettus, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. When they took Babylon, the Medes and the Persians were one nation made up of two nations that were still recognized. The great king of Persia was, of course, Cyrus. But he had a problem. There were the Medes who had been a nation, and they, they, they really wanted to consolidate it. But he had a real problem. His grandfather was the king of the Medes, and so you don't hurt grandpapa, you know, so he had to work that out. And finally, there will only be the Persians. But these, at this point, they were two nations. And then... Uh, this is telling you that the game is over. I want to stop a minute on this. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. The verse, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways that you have not glorified, that that does apply to us too. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, does it ever? Yeah, that's very... Our life breath is in every person's hand. You know, you don't realize that as much as when you're young. 
Oh, wait a minute. We got that turned on. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't know what I'll it, go I on. do. I, I'll go up and turn it off. Oh, no, it's fine. Well, let me turn it off right here. Oh, yeah, they might put some mounts on there. There we go. Anyway, back at the ranch. <laughs> yeah, every this is true of every person where our life is in his hands. You know, as we get older, we realize that more and more. We're not made yeah. of iron and steel and gold, <laughs> and, you know. And of course, the king probably knew this, but this is a this is a strong condemnation. And all oh, you have not got glorified God in your ways. You know, you come to this point, and I tend to, and maybe you do too, look back on what I haven't done in serving the Lord. And now I have not honored him. And a comfort I have is there's somebody else who says this, Second Timothy. Who wrote Second Timothy? Timothy. <laughs> no. no, no, who wrote it? Paul. Paul wrote it to, to, to Timothy. Yeah. Yeah. You know what he says in the first chapter? Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. And in Greek, it's in the present tense. Amy, I am chief. And I find as we get older, and at least I do, I tend to think like that. And you know, Paul's being very humble. No, Paul's being very honest, and he looks back at the Christians he had killed. And when you bring these things back, and then you thank God, we were walking and praying this week in Phyllis Hamlet. She said, I'm just thanking him that he died for me. And that becomes more and more precious as the days go by. Well, that is what is going on here. And so at this point, if I was Belshazzar, I think I'd have a conversion. That's not what he does. <laughs> then Belshazzar gave orders and clothed Daniel in purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning that he now had Authority is the third ruler in the kingdom, which consisted of a town, city. That's it. And the same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, the Castine king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, Darius is not, I don't think there's big discussion on this in biblical studies. I do not think Darius is Cyrus nor the general that actually took the city. I believe that what he's saying is that Darius the Mede, and we'll see this in six, is going to rule under Cyrus, and he will be over that city. Now, what we have in this is that uh, Daniel has faithfully followed God. There will be people who live through this, but Babylon has come to an end. And it will not be a city again in power. Now, there will, if you go to the Revelation, you find in chapter, uh, you go in chapter 18, you see another Babylon. I do not believe this is the same Babylon. I believe it is a Babylon, but it's like the old Babylon, but I don't believe it's a resurrected Babylon. Now, Babylon does not exist at all today except in ruin. But this is a lesson for us. God told them, you're through. If you read Daniel, the game is over for you. God does that to other nations. We are right now all watching the Gaza Strip. 
And of course, um, I suspect that issue has already been uh, given, uh, published by God against the Mots. Uh, but that area is a good example of there's a time when God says, it's over. And I don't know where we are right now as a nation, but we may be very close to that. Now, can we have a revival? Yes. And uh, we've been uh, studying the uh, teaching on the end of the uh, kings of Judah. And you got the worst king that ruled in Judah. And who was that? His, his name was Manasseh. Manasseh, yes. exactly. Yes, you back there is Manasseh. And God said, and you, you get into this both in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, he says Manasseh is the worst and he is going to take the kingdom down. And you go along and all of a sudden you come to Chronicles 33, 2 Chronicles 33, and here's Manasseh, the worst king that's ever lived. Well, they take him captive, the, actually the the Persians take him captive and they take him and leave him in Babylon and he's in chains. And then it says, he turned to the Lord his God and Manasseh knew that the Lord was with him. He was converted. And I'm thinking, Lord, you know, he's a bad guy. The Lord comes back and says, Rose, you're also a bad guy. And that's one of the great salvation messages in the Bible. But it doesn't change the issue. The time of Judah is over. One that's more real to us today, because it's on top of us, is Gaza, as I mentioned. Who were the people that occupied Gaza? Had, they had five royal cities during the time of King David and Saul. Phoenicians? No. Not Phoenicians, the but they came from Philistines. Yeah, they came out of Greece. The, the, the Philistines. Phoenicia, the Philistines came out of uh, both Achaia and Macedonia, Upper and Lower Greece, or Lower and Upper Greece. They came out of Asia Minor, out of the cities along the, the coast of what were the seven churches of the apocalypse, that area. They came then to the Isle of Crete, then they left Crete, and they went to Cyprus. And from Cyprus, some of them went to Egypt. And they fought in the 12th century, they fought the Egyptians. Others came to the Phoenician literal, which is Tyre, Sidon, and Canaan. And they, that, they were their problem. But something interesting happens to them. Now, they had a lot of chance to know God and about him. Some of them probably did, but they were a bad group. And when you come to the little book of Zechariah, the prophecy, they come up again. They come up as living in Ascalon, which was their main city. You had the five cities, but Ascalon, which has been in the news a lot of years. And God says through Zechariah, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, he says, the Philistines are going to be totally wiped out, and you won't know where they've gone. And they, the sheep who graze on the tells will remain 
of the city of the Philistines. That happened. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and took the land of Canaan and, and, and everything, in 600 he really took it over. In 600 he found that the people who were the Philistines, they had writings about them, but nobody knew where they had gone. And we don't know today what happened to the Well, he moved different people around. Nebuchadnezzar moved yep. this group into this country and moved this group into this country and mixed them all up. And yeah. That was pretty smart. Yeah, it was. That's why he kept peace in one sense. But he comes to the Philistines and he says in his own writing, that's what God said. So all of the Philistines are dead. <laughs> dead. As far as we know, we know no remains of the Philistines. And, uh, they were made up, by the way, of several group, people groups. When you get into Greece, which they were, what mostly came out of Greece, they got so out of At any rate, that that tells us that what God does to Babylon, He does to others. And the main thing is to see it not happen to America. And so like Daniel, we're to stand up and live for the Lord, but we hope we don't have to say or understand. Well, I have another question that's very simple, but the way Daniel spoke to the king, all right, would you, it, it looks as if you were alive when your dad experienced all these things and you saw it happen. Yeah, you knew all these things. Okay. Yeah, toward the end of it anyway, he probably was, you know, fairly young. If we take it, there are two views to this. One is that Nebuchadnezzar was not his father, but his grandfather. But the other one is that he was his father. Well, it says his father. Well, the problem there is a little bit of the same problem with Hebrew language. Aramaic. They don't have a word for grandfather. And they don't have a word for grandmother. You're a father, and that's it. Okay. But I do think, and you know, I'm not alone in this because if I was alone in it, I know I'd be wrong. But anyway, there's some. But it could be that he was a grandfather. And uh, I think it was his father. And it would fit in with the time. So this is what happened to Babel. When we go on from here, we're going to begin to now look at first what Daniel is experiencing <laughs> under the new ruler, the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're going to meet Darius and, and some others, and we're going to get to hear a story that all of our kids love in Sunday school, Daniel and Denine's den. <laughs> And then in seven, we're going to be looking at heaven. Very, Daniel has as much to say about this scene in heaven as many book in the Bible. And we'll be doing that. And anyway, we'll be going off there. Next week, we will not meet because it is Thanksgiving week. And uh, we all have a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and we will be back and we will finish up on Daniel. We get the nine. You don't want to miss nine. Daniel 9 brings us to the life of Christ and why he, he gives us the rest of history. You are in, as it were, Daniel 9. So, if you want to get there. Any questions you have?